0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a series that we started quite some time ago on the story... Jesus. We've taken a look at John's gospel and um, asked the question, who is Jesus, and tried to answer that question uh, from John's gospel, particularly the prologue. And then we moved on to the birth and early life of John the baptizer, whom uh, scripture said would be the forerunner of the Christ And we've taken a look uh, at who John the Baptizer was and how uh, his early life began and how he developed uh, through until the time when God called him out of the wilderness of Judea to uh, preach a message of repentance and faith in the coming Christ. Then we have moved on to the birth and early life of Jesus, and that's where we are uh, at this point. Uh, We started a sub-series, if you will please, on the legacy of Jesus. And we find this in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin at uh, verse... 28, as soon as I can get there, or verse 26, and reading through verse 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondservant or the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the reading of his word. In these few verses, we have what is known as the legacy of the Lord. The legacy of the Lord. And I would have you called to remembrance what a legacy is. We defined it a couple of Sundays ago, but to refresh our memory, a legacy is something that is transmitted or received from someone who has lived before us that transforms and impacts our lives. A legacy is something transmitted or received from someone who has lived before us that has impacted or transformed our lives. In this text, there are five aspects to the legacy that Jesus Christ has left to us. And we've uh, talked about two of them already. We will speak to the third uh, this morning. The first was his name. His name is vitally important. God did not tell the angel Gabriel to tell Joseph and Mary to name his son Bob or Ralph or Carl or Phil. Not that those are not good names. But he instructed that the child be named Jesus for a specific purpose. In the Hebrew, the name is Yehoshua. Yehoshua, and it's translated into the English, Joshua. In the New Testament Greek, it is Yesus, and it is a translation of the Hebrew, Yehoshua, which means Joshua. So both the Old Testament name and the New Testament name are translated Joshua. But Joshua has a very specific meaning. It means God is salvation, or God saves. And for the Hebrew people, I need to remind us, for the Hebrew people, a a name was very significant. Now, my name doesn't mean anything. I don't know why my father and my mother called me Gary. There's no one in my family named that. So I wasn't named after anybody great in my family. Um, I don't know of any relative on my mother's or father's side that have that name. Don't know of anybody as I traced lineage all the way back to, uh, you know, the early, early days of our nation. Nobody in the family named that. Don't know why I was named that, but that's okay. Jesus was given this name for a specific purpose. It reflects who he is and what his accomplishments would be. Because that's why the Hebrew people gave their names specifically to their children. It reflected something of their character and their nature. And so the name Jesus reflects something of who he is and what he is to accomplish. Now many people would say, well, he is Jesus, he is the Son of God, and his accomplishments would that he would provide salvation, that he would live and die and go to a cross and uh, die for our sins, that we might have salvation in him. And so his accomplishment is that he provides salvation. And I would say To an extent that is true, but it is not the whole truth. The full truth is, He does not provide salvation. He is salvation. He is salvation. When you have Jesus in your life, you have his salvation in your life. And that's, you know, when you have that understanding, then the the New Testament becomes even clearer to us. Why must we believe on and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Because if you do not believe on him, if you do not receive him, you don't have salvation. It's as simple as that. Salvation does not come through the church. Salvation does not come through the the ministries of the church. Salvation doesn't come through our works. Salvation does not come through uh, all that we are able to do and believe and think and see and hear and so on and so forth. Salvation comes through Jesus and through Jesus alone. His name is significant. He is salvation. And he is the only salvation for sinners. Secondly, the angel told, uh, told uh, Mary that he would be great. Megos is the Greek word. He would be great. And uh, in our understanding of things... Greatness has to do with high rank, it has to do with being considerably above the norm or the average. Uh, If someone is great, that means that they are some kind of distinguished or important person. But when attributed to Jesus Christ, it means more than anything we can say about him, He is great because he is extraordinary. He is great because he is unique. He is great because he is one of a kind. There is no other individual, has never been an individual, is an individual, or will there ever be an individual like Jesus. He is the only begotten Son of God. There is no one else like him. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the apostle Paul wrote, "...who," speaking of Jesus, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Notice the greatness of Jesus here. Notice how God extols the greatness of his Son. Because of his obedience to the point of death, God has highly exalted him. The the phrase highly exalt means he is above everything else and everyone else. He is the supreme Example of what God desired in Him and in us. And then He's given Him a name, a name that's above every other name, greater than any other name that could be named to a human being, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. His greatness... Scripture tells us that because of his position as Son of God, because of his status as Lord and Savior, because of what he has accomplished on the cross, because of who he is, one day he will return as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the Lord of salvation. That's why the angel Gabriel told Mary, He shall be great. But then he also said to her a third thing, that he shall be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High. Now, some of you who are uh, attending in our Wednesday evening Bible study classes not a thousand years ago or a million miles away know that we had spent a number of weeks studying the names of God, the names of God. And we found that there are over 700 names for God the Father in Scripture over 700 names for God the Father in Scripture. He is called HaYa Asher Hayah. I am that I am. He is called El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is called Elohim, God of creation. He is called El Olam, the everlasting or the eternal God. He is called El Royi. The God who sees. And we could go on and on and on about the names of God, but you you get the understanding. The angel Gabriel told Mary that her child would be called the Son of the Most High. The Hebrew name El Elyon, the son of the God Most High. What did that mean? Mary, What did that mean to Jesus? And what should it mean to you and to me? Why is it significant that he should be called the son of El Elyon? Well, first of all, when the angel said that Jesus would be called the son of the Most High... How did Mary understand that? It's impossible to know. I mean, we're not mind readers and we're certainly far removed from her time, so we would not be able to speak to her and ask her what her first impressions were or what her first thoughts were when uh, he, he would be called the Son of the Most High. But one thing that she did know, she understood the name Elion. She knew what that name meant. It had been a part of her upbringing as a child that went to Sabbath school, as a child that listened to her father and mother as they taught her the scriptures and as they taught her the, the history of God and his uh, involvement in the Hebrew people's lives. The name Elayon means God Most High. Or the Most High God. It speaks not only of God as the sovereign Lord of the universe, which He created, but it also speaks of the one true living God, the only God. So when an individual mentions the name of God by using the phrase or using the words Elevion, they're talking about the one true living God. There is no other God beside him. There is no other God that compares to him because there are no other gods except Elyon. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you were to go back there and take a look at that, you don't need to at this moment, but in in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses, as he is preparing to die, and as he's getting the children of Israel ready to cross over the Jordan and go in and capture the promised land, Moses sits the children of Israel down, and he begins to share with them the greatness of, of God, who He is and all that He had done to them, in them, for them, and through them. How they were a special people to Him, and how He was to be the only true and living God to them. He extols the name of God. He talks about how God was disappointed in their sin, but how God forgave them through His judgments. He talked about the goodness of God and the mercy of God and how he provided for them in the wilderness wandering, how he called them out of uh, uh, the nations of the people to become his peculiar people. And then he reminded them of the words that God had spoken to them through the many years that they had been in existence. And in verse 39... Moses recited the word of the Lord to the children of Israel, See now that I, even I, am he, and there are no gods beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I am he and there is no God beside me. There are no other gods that exist. All of the other gods that people say are gods exist only in their mind. I am the only true and living God. Mary understood El Elyon to be God who exists over all creation in heaven, on earth, and throughout the universe. She understood that much. But did she understand her child to be the one God spoke to Israel about 750 years before this encounter that Mary had with the angel Gabriel? Those words recorded in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where God says to Israel Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days." of the earth did Mary understand that these words of God through Micah the prophet referred to her son and what all that prophecy meant with regard to her son I doubt that she grasped it I doubt that she understood it fully or completely or what about the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Did Mary understand? Did she perceive the meaning of these words of the prophet with regard to her son that was to be born? I doubt it. They probably never crossed her mind. When you note her response in verse 38, Luke chapter 1, verse 38, notice her response to the announcement of the angel Gabriel. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then Gabriel, the angel, departed from her. Mary recognized the Most High God as the one true and living God. And she recognized herself to be the handmaiden or the faithful slave of this God. for a 14 or 15 year old girl to bear the son of the only true and living God what would a young girl think about a revelation like that? That she would be the mother of a Child that was greater than her ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob greater than the great kings of Israel like David and Solomon and Hezekiah that he would be greater than the prophets of Israel such as Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah what a humbling thought She couldn't, in my own mind, she could not have understood the depth of all that the angel Gabriel had said to her. All she could do was accept it as God's word and God's will for her. Second, what did being the Son of the Most High mean to Jesus? What did it mean to Jesus? think about it for a minute. As Jesus was growing up, as he was learning from Joseph and Mary, as he would go to temple and would listen to the rabbis as they taught, as he would go to Sabbath school in the local synagogue and listen to the rabbis uh, as they taught the scriptures. When such a passage would come to mind, did Jesus think of himself as the Son of the Most High? If he did, how did that impact him? If he didn't, why would that be so? What did being the Son of the Most High mean to Jesus? In my mind, it meant what it always meant. In eternity past at that moment in time, throughout his entire earthly life, and now sitting beside the Father in heaven. Out of over 700 names given to God in the Old Testament, the one name that was most dear to him throughout his entire life was the name Father. Father. Did this diminish... The glory and the majesty of El Elyon? No. Not in the least. Jesus understood that El Elyon was the one true and living God. Is the one true and living God. But Jesus also understood that he was his father. Over 150 times in the New Testament when Jesus addresses God, He addresses him as Father. Father. R.C. Sproul, a number of years, relayed a story concerning Jesus Christ. He writes, quote, A few years ago a German scholar was doing research in New Testament literature and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism the entire history of Judaism in all existing books of the Old Testament and all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century A.D., a thousand years after Jesus, from all the way back to the time of Abraham through a thousand years after the time of Jesus, in all of the writings of Judaism, there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father. Not one. He goes on to write, The first Jewish rabbi to call God father directly was Jesus. The first one to call God Directly, Father was Jesus. It was a radical departure, he says, from hundreds of years of Jewish tradition, but that 's who God was, and that 's who God is to Jesus end quote now, one of the reasons why the elders of Israel hated Jesus was that he became so popular. people started leaving the synagogues and started leaving the temple and following Jesus around. Uh, The name Jesus was on practically everybody's lips, the ones who admired him as well as the ones who hated him. But another reason why the elders of Israel hated Jesus was because he called God Father. He called God Father. He claimed to have an intimate personal relationship with El Elyon. And they were incensed by the idea that a human being could say that I know the the supreme God of the universe. I know him intimately. I know him personally. And for them that was an impossible thing. They thought he was insane. They thought that he was of the devil to make such a claim. But Jesus knew God as Father, did not know Him as God the father just in his human physical life, but he has always known El Elyon as father. In eternity past, as well as in his life here on earth, as well as throughout all eternity, Jesus knows El Elyon as father. But not in terms that you and I understand Father. Jesus had no biological father like you and I have. He was conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not through the instrumentality of a human male, but directly by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was conceived in the womb of Mary. And it's a difficult concept for us to understand But it's a fundamental doctrine of Scripture. And it's also a fundamental doctrine of Christian theology, which we don't have time to get in this morning because it's really not the focus of what we're talking about. But by calling God Father, by calling God Father, Jesus expressed His position as equal but subordinate to God in fulfilling the plan of salvation. Equal but subordinate. Now, you may very well say uh, that's a contradiction uh, in terms equal but subordinate. Not so. I know that, and I, I'm not really well versed in military, but I know that there are, uh, and I've seen movies um, and I've talked to people where you have a three star general and another three star general and another three star general. They're equal in rank, but. There's one who is superior to the others in responsibilities and uh, accountabilities and so on and so forth. The others are subordinate to the authority of the one who has not necessarily the higher rank, but the higher responsibility or the higher appointment. Jesus Christ is the same in essence, character, nature, purpose, and will as God the Father and as the Holy Spirit but he designated himself as subordinate to the will of God the Father for the purposes of carrying out the plan of salvation. And this is spelled out by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, which I read earlier in the sermon. Now, if you really want to kind of grasp or have some understanding of this relationship between Jesus Christ as Son and El Elyon as Father, then I would recommend that you go to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. That you go to the John 17 and you read it carefully, you read it slowly You read it several times and you think about what it is that you're reading in terms of Jesus as the Son and Elohim as the Father. Because in that prayer, Jesus alludes to, speaks of His equality with the Father, but also speaks of His subordinate position to the Father. So, what did it mean for Jesus to be the Son of the Most High God? It meant what it always meant to Him, that God the Most High is His Father. But then the third point this morning is, what should the Son of the Most High God mean to us? What should it mean to you and what should it mean to me? Three things, I think, are important for us to Understand First of all, Jesus was, is, and forever will be God. Jesus was, is, and forever will be God. To be the son of a human is to be human. To be the only begotten son of God is to be God. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The prologue to John's gospel, John chapter 1. Notice in the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now in these first four verses of John's Gospel, we have John's explanation of who Jesus really is, who the Christ really is. First of all, he says that he was the Word. The Word was, in English, is in the original Greek, ain, which means to exist without a beginning. It means to be eternal. As opposed to another word in the Greek that's translated was in your English Bible, ienito. Ienito means to exist from a beginning. It means to be temporal. So here in the very first verse, John is telling us that the Christ, the Word, has always existed. And there is really only one who has existed throughout all eternity. And that is God himself. But the word has always existed. Ain was. He's always existed. Notice also, he is creator. All things came into being by him. And nothing exists, he says, apart from him. We know God created all things Genesis chapter 1 In the beginning was uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Well if God created the heavens and the earth and Christ is God would that make him also the creator Yes in concert with the Father in concert with the Holy Spirit They were all three involved in the creation. Notice also that he is the source of life. In him life exists was ain. Exists. He is the source of all life. And not only is he a source of all life, he is also the source of all truth because his life became the light of men. He is the source of all truth. And all of these things the Hebrew people understood These things came from God. These things are God. And John is telling us that Christ is a part of that Godhead. That which we call and know and understand to be God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. They are the same in essence and in character and in nature and in purpose. Christ lost nothing of his divinity when he became incarnate Jesus. He did set aside some of his rights and some of his privileges here, but he never set aside who he was and who he is. Second, he possesses the glory of God. He is not only God, but he also possesses the glory of God. What is God's glory? How do you define the glory of God? The Hebrew word is kabod. Kabod. And it means weightiness. It means weightiness. It means heavy. But not in terms of pounds and ounces. Not weighty in terms of physical weight. God's glory is God's weightiness, it's his significance, it's his divine dignity, it is who he is and what he is. God is holy and he's set apart from all things that are evil and sinful. He is righteous and he does all things according to his justice. And that's what sets him apart from every other being in the universe. Now, listen, friends. He is not the God of the Americans. And he's not the God of the Africans. And he's not the God of the Asians. And he's not the God of the Europeans. He's not the God of any other tribal or ethnic peoples. He is God. He created all people, all nations, all tongues. He is God and He is fair and impartial to all by His common grace. He allows the sun to rise and to set on all peoples, He allows the rain to fall on all peoples because He is God. We know these things, but it's hard to fully understand and to explain them to people who are not familiar with the Word of God. In John 1.14, John wrote, "...and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." In this verse, John defines the glory of God in Christ Jesus in terms of His ministry. His love, His compassion, His kindness, His forgiveness, His generosity in shunning evil and yet ministering to sinful people. We see the glory of God in the things that Jesus said because what He said was truth and not opinion. We see the glory of God in the things that He did because He did not do as other people did. As Nicodemus said to Jesus in John chapter 3, we know you're a man come from God because no one can do the things that you do except God is with him. So in his life, in his teachings, we see and we hear the glory of God. But his glory is also demonstrated in the brilliant light of his presence. The brilliant light of his presence. In his vision of the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, the prophet Isaiah saw God's glory. He saw Him high and lifted up, and the temple of God was filled with His glory. The apostle John said that Isaiah saw Christ, the Son of God, in His exalted glory. And he attests to that in John chapter 12 verse 41 when he said, These things said Isaiah when he saw the glory and spoke of him, meaning of Christ. This same glory was seen for a very brief moment by Peter, James, and John when Jesus took them to the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. This was the inherent glory of Christ shining through his humanity. And Peter, James, and John caught a glimpse of that. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, the apostle said, He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So, how should we see Jesus as the Son of the Most High. We see Him as God Himself, the second person of the Trinity. We see Him as the the glory of God manifest to us in His life and in His ministry. But third, as the Son of God, we should see Him as the only one who could offer Himself as the sacrifice of Acceptable to God that would satisfy His wrath against our sin. The only one who could offer Himself as the sacrifice acceptable to God that would satisfy His wrath for our sin. The plan of salvation involved all three members. Of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Together they created. And executed the plan that would save you and save me. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as Son. God the Father sent His Son to be the sacrifice that would satisfy his wrath against our sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin, the satisfaction that would appease the wrath of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. If you call on Him, that is, if you call on God, the Apostle Peter says, if you call on... God as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times... For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He is the glory of God as the one supreme sacrifice that is able to save us from sin. Now, this is just a cursory view of the legacy of Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. But to everyone who knows him, to everyone who has believed in him, to everyone that has received him, his life has impacted and transformed that believer. And those of you who are Christian can attest to that. That your life is not the same as it was prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because He is who He says He is. He is the true and living God. He is the glory of God made manifest, not only in the world, but in your life as a believer. And He is the only sacrifice that was able to save you from sin. That's why when you put your faith in Him and you received Him as Lord and Savior of your life, the transformation of your life began. It all started with Jesus. That's the legacy that He has left you. And for many of you, that's the legacy that you have received into your life. I pray... That that legacy lives on in you and through you to those who do not know Jesus Christ yet. But who will come to faith in Jesus Christ through your testimony, through your witness, through your example before them. Let's stand together in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray now as we leave the house that you will go with us in every area of our activities today. That we will be mindful of your presence. That we will be mindful of your sovereignty over us. And that, Father, we will do and we will say those things which are pleasing in your sight so that others may see Jesus in us and be drawn to Him, that through the power of the Holy Spirit they too might experience the spiritual birth into the kingdom which You have provided so richly to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. These things I ask in His name. And all of God's people said, God bless you and have a great day in the Lord.